Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. A quick thank you to the T5 peeps. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Try Again 95, Astray the Dreamer, Mezik, Budic Joel, German Chemist, Casper Arnholtz, and Chaos to Must. Thank you very much. Chapter 366 Nebula Steam Login Username DMO The Magician Password Never Share Your Password Neb Steam Customer Service Will Never Ask You For Your Password Supreme Secure Underscore Password Welcome to M.O. The Magician. You have 14 new messages and one urgent message. View normal messages? No. View urgent message? Yes. From Nebula Steam Starlight Program to Great Most High of Planetary Maintenance to M.O. Your submitted game, Terran Maintenance Attack Simulator, has been reviewed by a quality and standards team, as well as undergone our six-day playtest system. Your recent patch, 0.4.1.82.a, food dispenser update, was received and applied. We are proud to announce that your game, Terran Maintenance Attack Simulator, has been approved for sale on Nebula Steam as part of the Starlight Program, which seeks to amplify the reach of indie developers such as yourself. Simply go to your developers page and follow the instructions. Remember to upload both your 2D and 3D VR game cover art, as well as double-check your splash page stinger for translation errors. At this time, you are approved for early access release, alpha test release, beta test release, or full release. Additional options are available to you for release to your media, as well as advertising your media. Once again, we here at Nebula Steam would like to welcome you to our Starlight program, and we look forward to working with you. The digitally simulated brain of Gabe Newell, Nebula Steam LLC. Would you like to see your developer's page and tools? Yes. Great most higher planetary maintenance to MO galloped around the relaxation lawn behind the planetary maintenance vicinity, feeling his chest swell with an unidentified emotion. He knew that upstairs, on his computer, files were being uploaded to Nebula Steam rolling out the early access release of what had started out as a mere way of passing the time. Neo Sapiens stared at him as he galloped around, but merely smiled to one another. De Amo was unknown to be a bit eccentric for a land, but he authorized plenty of overtime, divided up maintenance across the planet into zones where one could travel very little to reach work order, and had even broken open the stalls and allowed Neo Sapiens to use government vehicles rather than take public transport to job sites. Why, he had even authorized uniforms that displayed that the Neo-Sapiens worked for planetary maintenance, complete with badges of ranks and coloration that displayed what part of the maintenance that they worked for. One of the Savishan sitting on the bench eating a sandwich with actual real meat TM in it had been accosted by Lawsec two weeks ago. Most tied to M.O. had arrived personally to release him from a jail cell, took back the tools, chastised the Lawsec commander. And then, weirdly enough, when heating failed to all Lawsec officers' offices, had put the repairs on low priority. As far as the Sabashan was concerned, if the M.O. wanted to run around circles wearing a purple paper hat and blowing a musical instrument, 
the Samishan would defend Amao's right to do so. Amao himself was sweating and blowing heavy, his heart still full of something he couldn't describe. As he leaned into the corner that he was running around, he couldn't believe it. It was too incredible, it was too outlandish. He had logged into his developer options page on Nebula Steam and carefully read through the contract. It was mind-bogglingly, it was outrageous. He retained full control of his programs, all rights to it. Nebula Steam would host it on their servers, even offered an option for hosting it on multiple player servers, and only asked for 40% of the tank. That was outrageous. Then he had discovered that he could release different versions as long as they were functionally different. He had spent nearly a week coding heavily, allowing the VI supervisors to handle the basic maintenance, and had come up with multiple versions of his game. Why? He'd be getting 6 credits out of 10. He had set the price to 120 credits for the full version, 60 credits for the limited version, 80 credits for multiplayer, 40 credits for the Food Dispenser Panic DLC. What a wonderful concept. Downloadable content that you could just be patched into the game, changing the game, updating it, without having to completely redo it. Just the thought of such a remarkable idea made to Emma O quiver with excitement. And the 510 credit world map packs, and the city procedural generation software that was available as free download to anyone who owned the executive precard version. Then there was the building art pack for various planets and species, even including a special building relevant to each species, for only 5 credits. That came bundled with the executive precard version, not to mention the demo that would unlock into the limited edition for a Neo Sapien put in the worker ID number. He had, at first, ensured the settings were put right so that his implant would be pinged for each sale. In the beginning, there was only a handful of pings for the first few hours. Then more. Then even more, until his implant couldn't keep up. He was terrified to look at the Nebula Steam wallet. There was a shimmering in the air as he slowed down, coming to a stop and panting. He tapped the shimmer and the VR representation of a door appeared. The pink panty fairy stepped through, wearing her now new outfit that he'd carefully designed for her. It was modeled after Terran power suits, not the combat kind, no, the kind that projected authority and dominance, consisting of a pair of shined high-heeled boots, slacks with creases on the front edge of the legs, and an official-looking torso covering with long sleeves and cufflinks. She wore a pink sash that displayed that she was Damao's personal assistant and operated with his full authority. Damao had carefully gone over Terran images of powerful females and what they wore. He had agonized over the current fashions, dressing properly for various jobs and other media. He had eventually settled on a modification of the Space Force female Terran uniform, complete with sash. He made gold, Damao baby, she said her glittering iridescent wings twitching, ten million sales in the last two hours. Damo shuffled nervously. Even your map packs, the DLC, the executive freakout versions are firmly in gold status, she said. She lifted up a clipboard and looked at it. At current projections, you should hit platinum within a week. Returns are less than 2%, your rating is outstandingly positive, and average customer engagement on the first playthrough is three hours. Damo nodded reaching into his pouch and putting out a wad of carefully harvested expensive cud. He jammed it into his mouth and slowly began chewing it, thinking. 
He had been thinking of adding a work crew supervisor expansion pack where a being could take on the role of a supervisor and move through the procedurally generated buildings to watch over the Neo-Sapiens as they worked. If the game was doing that well, he might have to adapt the old public domain software that generated dungeons that he had found on the code repository site. Combining it with the shopping trip simulator software that he'd found abandoned might work. Currently, using proxy servers to upload the game mean that the majority of purchasers are interested parties think that the game is developed and uploaded from Hessler, which still is a high Lanarkland population despite being nominally under Terran control, she said. She lowered a clipboard and it vanished. So, damn it, oh baby, what's your plan now? The pink secretary asked. Damo trotted towards the door that would lead to the elevator that would take him to his office. What's my schedule look like? The pink secretary looked at another clipboard. Clear for the next two days. That's when you have a scheduled an inspection of the workers' maintenance vehicles. Damo nodded. That gave him an idea. Maintenance street racing, where the players could race bulky, unresponsive cargo vehicles and tool vans through the city streets to a job competing with other maintenance teams to reach the contract and clock in first. He quickly mentally jotted a note and passed it to his data link to pass to his console. Perhaps have a wild cord where overpowered flaming Terran vehicles attempt to run the maintenance crew vehicles off the road, he thought. How is the reference gathering for Project Blah 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 going? he asked her. She consulted a datapad. Not well. Mostly we've had to use police sketches and mock-ups as well as video taken from Galnet. Damnation and tarnation, as the Trianidad cattle rustler would say. De Emma-O thought to himself. He had ridden home in a limousine one foggy night, staring out the window, and had gotten the idea to create an entertainment game completely based on fiction, starring the Night Terran. But he was having a hard time gathering concrete data on the elusive figure. You asked me to remind you about tonight, baby, the pink secretary said. The motion capture actors, Damano stated. He stopped and waited for the elevator. The Neo-Sapiens and a few female Lennox Land were supposed to arrive at his domicile for dinner and then motion capture. He was planning on rewarding them handsomely. Credits brought more cooperation than his rank, and he learned to appreciate it. In the elevator, he brought up a data on his retinal link, examining it. Most of what he wanted was available on public domain software repositories. He'd gained an eye for being able to determine if the software might be usable. If it contained extensive documentation, it would be easily usable. If it did not, there might be hidden gems within it, but by and large, the programmer would have been deceased for tens of thousands of years. An idea for another entertainment simulation bubbled up in his mind and he clapped his lower hands together excitedly, even as he made notes on his data link. True, most of his ideas would prove to be unworkable or not as exciting as he thought at the time, but for every score that he had been discarded, one would provide the kernel of a great idea. The door opened and he trotted down the hallway. Opening the door to his office, he nodded to his Aikiki receptionist, who professionally ignored him as she applied dye to her very tips of her pin feathers with a small brush. She was wearing the finest clothing. Her plumage was lush and lavish, and her jewelry sparkled in the light of the office. Just her appearance had been enough to put many complaining Lanarkland in their place. 
The fact that she was so pampered and lavished upon told all Anaclan that she was more valued by the great most high of planetary maintenance, Damo, than they ever possibly would be. He sat down in his comfortable chair and waited for the backrest and armrests to rotate into position. He checked his real maintenance program, not his entertainment one, and authorized overtime, dispatched work crews, and scheduled time off for his crews. Once he had spent two hours working, he had a break and leaned back in his chair, slowly chewing on some expensive cud. He had an idea. Logging back into Nebula Steam, he perused the Terran Confederacy stalls, using a proxy server to pretend that he was logging in from the Confederacy-controlled worlds. He knew that he'd seen it briefly. Now he was sure. Achievements. He said the word slowly, savoring it. Checking one of the more popular games, he then ran searches to see who was playing the game that had at least 20 hours into it. It was a popular game, a magical primitivism simulation where the user could fight fantastic creatures, romance attractive and unattractive beings, explore ruins and wilderness while wielding steel weapons and magic. There it was. Pinned achievements. He examined it closely. Terrence prized the most difficult achievements. Some achievements had been acquired by less than 0.0001% of those with at least 10 hours in the game. Such achievements as I thought I thought put it at, role fighting a giant saber-toothed cat with only a front knife in a blizzard during a full moon while only wearing a wolfskin armor and a hat made from yellow bird feathers. All the achievement, chrome lips sink ships. For any battleship gunner's mate, rating five or higher who killed at least one enemy vessel as their own ship was being destroyed and choosing to respawn in the ship's clone bank and return to the station even as the ship broke up. De Amo checked his schedule. He still had six hours that he had to be at his desk. He checked the work program. The only thing that needed his attention was a wandering Terran had set plants ablaze in a park in the EVR-enhanced reality, and the maintenance team needed a level 3 exorcism team. He authorized it and closed the program. What if I could make it a status symbol, he thought. Sashes proclaimed various ranks and awards, but if one had a retinal link like any proper gamer, R-Link, Life-Yo, then a being's game attack would have their nebula steam rank appearing in your vision when you looked at another gamer who was broadcasting his ID. By nightfall, he realized he'd been in his office till almost dinner. He rushed home, hosted the fancy dinner, and then used his motion capture equipment to recall the various beings doing mundane tasks, right down to washing dishes by hand. He paid everyone, then galloped down the hallway to a solid battle steel door. He quivered with excitement when his gull net link cut off. The electronic warfare system that he'd managed to get transferred to him via a long looping shipping circuit kept anyone from accessing what was beyond the door from the outside. The door creaked open, wide light appearing. He quivered with excitement. He had taken the visuals from exciting Terran games and he had to admit it was psychologically powerful. He trotted into what was beyond. What had been a wine cellar had been built off the books by heavily bribed neo-sapient work crews that he'd paid with cred sticks, promotions, and prestigious employment locations. His programming lab, bold EVI assist, enhanced virtual reality. He had modeled it after the vehicle repair being B823 that he had managed to get onto his account. He rubbed his hands together as he activated his assistance. 
the girls from the wonderfully subversive program appeared, all working hard, with the exception of the redhead who sat in the corner reading a magazine and smoking a cigarette, giving him a haughty look as she smoothed her black and red plaid skirt with one hand. He worked far into the night, going to bed only after the pink programming assistant fairy woke him up for the third time. Still, success. He'd done it. He, the great most high planetary maintenance to MO, had managed to complete the impossible. When he trotted into work the next day, everyone could see scrolling on his sash the fact that he had a Platinum Nebula Steam Achievement Award, that his sash edging wasn't a straight line, but was, instead, a flickering violet and pink flame pattern. The Amao could feel the envy of his lessers as they gazed in awe at the achievements displayed by his sash. Any being could get attendance and good parking awards for their sash. When he finished the morning's required maintenance, he leaned back in his chair and pressed the EBR button. The pink secretary first appeared, holding a clipboard. How's it hanging, Damo, baby? she asked, smiling. You tell me, dear one, Damo replied. She looked at a clipboard. The retinal link nebula steam account interlink has gone platinum. The sash link is the same, she smiled widely. Nebula Steam approved your proposal that only icons that match your specifications can be used as a basis for the award displays. Damo rubbed his hands together. And how many software entertainment organizations have purchased the icon and software packages that I offered them? All of them, Damo baby, she replied. Excellent, Damo said. Already Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe have successfully defended your proprietary programming and styles, she said and consulted a datapad. They had been paid in full for their services and put on retainer. Excellent, Damino said. He thought for a long moment, swinging around to stare out the window. I need another assistant, someone to assist me in this job to free me for my true passion. The pink secretary fairy frowned slightly. Mitches? Damino motioned with all four hands out the window. To make work into something enjoyable. To use VR and Galnet to provide a sense of accomplishment that seems to have been stripped from real life. He rubbed his hands together. To give everyone a sense of achievement. 42nd Assistant Most High of Food Processing Skaema-er clopped into the lunchroom of the massive building that housed licensing. He adjusted his sash and ensured his retinal link ID header was on as he crossed the room to the line waiting to order lunch. He realized that in front of him was a Lanark Lan who had the gamertag Nebula Steam Score, and achievements displayed on their expensive and fashionable sash as well as all over their head. The Lanark Lan, whose sash proclaimed him to be the twelfth most high, had only silver achievements. Gamer reached forward and tapped the other Lanark Lan on the side. The Lanark Lan turned, frowning, looking at Gamer. Move, lowly one, Gamer said reaching up and tapping his sash. The twelfth most high of traffic supervision, Pez Ant, started to lift his lip and then saw the top-ranking achievement far outstripped anything that he had accomplished. Feeling shame before one of his peers, he moved out of the way, letting Gamer take his place. Pez Ant ground his cut and promised himself that he would grind extra hard that night, that achievement flaunted by Gamer would be his. Oh yes, oh yes, it would be. End of chapter. Chapter 367
The ship dropped out of the Oort Cloud beyond the Kuiper Belt from hyperspace. It let the energy bleed off of the hyperdrives as it used a crawler drive to move slowly away from the entry space. It fired a single drone with a full hyperdrive and massive scanners, then shifted position. It shut down all emissions, used a graviton generator to eliminate its mass profile and gravitic signature, and slowly moved into a diffuse cloud of H2O crystals and waited. A patrol appeared less than three days later, nosing around, scanning the area tightly. After a few days of searching, the patrol left. The ship stayed silent and dark. Twice more patrol ships appeared, spreading out, looking for whatever had appeared briefly. The third time they found a probe as it accidentally leaked a power signature. The ships left on it, opening fire on it and destroying it. They then backtraced to the position the ship had entered on, over two light seconds from where it currently drifted, slowly absorbing H2O crystals. For a month, the ship drifted, using powerful passive sensors, moving through clouds of frozen gases and liquids, absorbing what it could until its storage tanks were full. The ship oriented, seeking out a lone inhabited planet in the system, and engaged hyperdrive. It streaked back into existence just as the gravity well limited and activated its powerful engines and deployed its heavy-duty screens. Through the system, the alarm went out. The ship's profile could only be from one species. The markings on the hull corresponded with an organization that every being on the planet feared. The ship powered down through the atmosphere. The computers had located a suitable landing spot and drove hard for it. A mere 2,000 feet above the ground, it decoupled with the re-entry shielding, filling the air with chaff and flares and EM scatter, and dropped to the ground. A powerful retro-rocket fled, slowing the craft down, baking the land beneath it to a hard, almost concrete. The ship set down. It immediately shifted. The engines were pulled into the hull, and powerful grinders ripped apart the machinery. The hull flattened, extended out put down pylons, and shipped its shape. Inside the ship's circuitry engaged, the cloning bank activated, creating a single body. The body was clothed, placed in a comfortable command chair by robotics, and a neural jack thumped into place at the base of the peak's skull. Neural templates were loaded up in less than a minute. The system sent a jolt of electricity through the being's nervous system and gave the body a kick to the chest to start the heart and lungs. Commander Jane Marcus Prestini opened her eyes, looking around quickly. She looked down, noted her body was male this time, and closed her eyes, adjusting her thinking. She knew it was random, but sometimes it felt to her like the system was loaded to produce males more than females when her body spawned. She blinked several times and sat up, looking at her control board. A few upgrades since the last time she'd used it, which was, according to the chronometer, 82 years ago. A long, cold sleep, sure, but not too bad. She looked up at the screens and saw that they were blank, and quickly brought her interface online. It took her less than 15 seconds to put her interface together. She knew that she had worked fast, so she went with bare bones. She'd customize it later. According to her topography map made by the ship that she dropped in, she was a half mile from Delta and was covered in vegetation and the northeast mountains 20 miles to the west, ocean to the east, rolling plains and beginnings of suburbs and cities to the southwest. 
As she was looking over the maps, she was already issuing commands to her system. She needed more work droids, so she ordered six of them up in the queue. She needed point defense online, so she set one of her four working on building that. Two of them she set to working on building cloning banks with basic issue nanoforge system. The last one she set to building intake pipes out of the delta that would pull in water and biomass, run the biomass through grinders and dump it into the biomass tanks. She knew that she didn't have long. The first five minutes were the most crucial in her profession, and the being in command of the military forces on the planet was a priority target. Countering and eliminating him was more important than even seizing the real estate. Still, Jane worked fast, allocating precious biomass, mass tank contents, and quickly setting up jobs for her worker drones. Jade's ship had been on the ground 90 seconds, and she'd been awake for 60 of them. The clock was running. Tomo Akamo was a planetary defense most time, a job that he had come to regret taking the last two months. First, there had been the hyperspace signal out in the Yore Cloud. While the executive most high had insisted that Smart Akamo's equipment must have been in error since the signal was so brief and weak, Smart Akamo knew that it was the Terrans. When he had found the probe, the executive most high had been furious at being proved wrong. Still, Smart Akamo had that feeling. Another one, the one you get when they are walking alone and suddenly you know someone or something has decided that you're the victim on the Predator is Right game show that you didn't know that you'd signed up for. It looks as if the ship broke apart just south of the Tamister R Delta. The executor security most high was stating, his head lifted up as he gazed down the long nose at everyone. By a reserve judgment until aerospace craft had run a search pattern in the area, Smaakama O said. He pointed out the flickering and grainy holotank where several diamonds were moving towards the area. You act like an elderly token brood carrier, seeing Terrans under every piece of furniture and behind every door. The upper Odo sneered. Smaakama O turned slowly, his hooves clattering on the floor. For a moment, he looked just like every other land. Then the side of his face flickered, had resolution lines flow through them. The prosthetic hologram vanished. The entire side of his face was a mass of scar tissue, a crude cybernetic eye, the best land cyber technology could provide. At least I have seen them, Smaakama-o said coldly. You may judge my caution after your first battle with Terran Confederate Space Force. The other Lanaklan drew back slightly as Smaakamao reactivated his prosthetic hologram and went back to staring at the holotank. tank. The Most High had fought the Terrans three times and survived the experience. The fourth time was legendary. He had managed to force a Terran carrier group to jump out of the system through geometry, careful maneuvering and denying them access to any of the gas giants, losing only 14% of the 10,000 ships that he sent against the 40 Terran ships. A grand victory that his scarring rubbed in the faces of his rivals. The scars on his flank from where he had suffered an injury at the hands of a Terran infantry were visible to all as he stared at the holotank. This world is uh, resource poor. A single Terran ship presents no threat, Lopado stated. The asteroid belt is mined out and any Randoble gases have been removed from the gas giants. The most of this planet is um, sort of scattered iron deposits. 
Give me a geological makeup of the delta and the mountains, Smackamao ordered. The functionary threw up a data and Smackamao stared at it. He turned to Lopadao and pointed at a hollow tank with one whirring and clicking cyber arm that replaced the arm that had been burned away when the armored vehicle Smackamao had been riding had taken a glancing hit from a Terran tank. No resources. Then, what do you call that? Smackamao asked. The executor's security force most high leaned forward, squinting at the icons, then shook his jaw and laughed. Petroleum? Unrefined biocarbon? Smaakmao pointed at the Delta itself. Brackish water, a mixture of sea water and fresh water, after the fresh water's journey down from the mountains, laden with chemicals from industrial and urban runoff. So, um, uh, what? The, the Terran might build some plastic armor and, and rush us with a plastic sword. The corporate security's most high, one Ilakamaoni, sneered. Sakamao held back his temper. It had been getting worse over the last year since he had been released from the hospitals. His stomachs, all four of them, churned with acid as he pulled out a wad of Medicud. Plastic for wiring insulation, ablative soft armor, soft internal structures, Smakamao answered. He looked back at the busy functionaries. I want a seismic reading. It took less than 30 seconds for the earthquake monitors to come alive. Normally used to warn of infrequent earthquakes out in the ocean, the techs were cranking up the sensitivity. Look at that, um, heavy industrial drilling. The ship didn't uh, break up, but instead landed, Smackamo said. Who cares? One ship. You yourself fought ten times that number and emerged victorious with just eight months ago. And Likamaoni said, his voice dripping with condensation. And lost thirty times their number just in armored vehicles, Smackamao answered. He looked up. How much longer till the aerospace scouts are over the area? Ninety seconds, most high, the technician answered. Jane saw the three groups of ten aerospace fighters, all in wedges, heading towards her and the basic sensors came on. Her glance showed that she had six-point defense systems and two anti-air batteries up. She checked the status of her resource tap drill and ground her teeth. 3,000 feet to go. The drill chewing up 100 feet a second. The pipeline from Delta was almost finished, but she had a feeling she'd better use her biomass or lose it. She ordered up four squads of infantry, born whole templates, basic armor and weapons, and watched as the false grow tank started burning through the biomass. She'd be almost dry, but it might be worth it. The heavy military nanoforge class 7 wouldn't be complete and online for another three and a half minutes. Too late. She looked over her board, looked at her map, and then looked at her base, and nodded. It would have to do. The enemy aerospace was less than 30 seconds from visual range. The enemy base appeared on the holotank, a low squat building, odd-looking with slanted edges. Another building that gave no clue as to what they were. The air defense pods started firing multi-barrel kinetic weapons that fired shards of metal at the aerospace recon fighters. Two launched missiles. Close range point defense knocked the missiles out of the air. One aircraft exploded, then another, then another. Then it was a Terran's turn to take enemy fire. The missiles were launched. Almost all of them were knocked out of the air. One hit a robotic drone that was carrying a stack of piping. The other hit some side of the building and exploded, scorching and denting the armor. 
A team of ten soldiers ran out of one building, all of them firing their magnetic accelerated rifles at the aerospace fighters. Then the recon craft were passed, hitting their afterburners to open up range. Some Akama-O nodded slowly. This was new. There should have been dozens of Terran military around. The only military that he'd seen was the ten soldiers that had jogged out of the building. Something weird is going on. This is new. And for the Terrans, new is bad, Smackabo thought. Order an attack upon that base, Lapido ordered. A mere company of tanks should do the job, he sneered. Send in power arm of infantry, Smackabo ordered. You waste resources, Lapido said. Wasting resources is why I'm alive to even apply my knowledge on Terran military operations to the defense of this planet, Smackmo stated. Tanks and infantry will be ready in two hours. And then we, we wipe the Terrans from the face of the, the, the planet. I, like a mini, sloughed. Jane was still working fast. She had survived the first five minutes, even had shot down almost a dozen enemy aerospace craft. She'd ordered drones to recover the wreckage and throw it into the grinders, with orders to examine the monocirques to try and determine the enemy wavelengths. She had her nano-forge up, had linked it to the cloning bag, so that now the clones could come out wearing Type 2 armor and carrying Tier 2 weapons. Mortar was pumping in from the Delta, filtered for biomass and industrial chemical contaminants, and then used to cool the reactors in the building. The biomass went straight into the cloning lab, the chemicals went straight to the nanoforge. Finally, the drill had reached the petroleum, a mixture of industrial chemicals and biomass. She had the crude pumped out of the storage tanks. She had the mass and resources to build the vehicle's nanoforge. She set her drones to work, three to build her building, and the other nine her limit to building defense systems. Sma o watched as the dozen tanks, backed by 50-powered armored infantry, charged the Terran base. The Terrans had their defenses up and the tanks were shredded by anti-armor fire. The power armor shredded by infantry dug into heavily armored fighting positions. In the middle of the fight, one of the fighting positions had hatch open and the top and deployed a rapid-fire heavy minigun. The attack was destroyed. You are giving the Terrans too much time to dig in, Smackmao said. You need to swarm them under now. Every minute they'll get stronger, tougher, with more troops, vehicles, and weapons. <laughs> they have access to water and petroleum, I lick him at honey, said. So what? See, they're gathering the wreckage, taking it back to dump it. You let them set up one of their damnable nanoforges, Smackmao told him. The other two most highs waved their hands, ignoring the problem. Send in more tanks. Back them up with flight of grab strikers and a battalion of infantry, Lapido ordered. Smackamao watched as they sent more troops in. He quietly ordered the nearby military base to full alert, to fire up even the tanks. If any executor tried to stop the officers, the officers were to summarily execute them on the spot. Jane cursed as the fast recon drone showed a nearby lanky military base light up. Someone wasn't waiting for escalation. Gonna zerg me, huh? she said. She prioritized power generation, mass reclamation, and vehicle nanoforge upgrade, adding two more nanoforges to the building to build advanced weapons and ammunition for the vehicles. Her console started beeping, and she cursed again. 
More tanks, backed up by air support and infantry. Moving quickly, she gave the orders to the Born Hall clones, sending them through the tunnels to the bunkers, making sure the Nano Fortress printed out anti-armor weapons. You think this is my first time? She giggled, the sound completely at odds with her male body. Smakma'o watched the tanks, strikers, and infantry were deployed. He watched as, again, the Terrans seemed to prioritize gathering the wreckage. As he watched, another two pipelines to the Delta were being built and a long one, miles long, was heading for a cliff that dropped into the ocean. He frowned. A light tank rolled out of the building, armored Terrans running from one building, getting in, and moving it to patrol the border of the military encampment. He could see soda collectors being built, and, as he watched, a basic petroleum refinery was finished, the robotic drones rushing over to build another refined petroleum generator. The Terrans were building the base right before his eyes, and his idiotic co-commanders were just letting the Terrans do it. Use atomics, Smakama-O said, his voice horrified. On our own planet? That close to an urban center? Lopado asked, horrified. You don't have much longer. Use atomics or kinetic kill weapons from orbit, he said. As he watched, two robotic drones started flattening the ground. With a sinking feeling, he realized that a striker runway was being built. Use atomics, he whispered. The other two, Lanik Lan, ignored him. Jane laughed as the seawater started flowing in. It had everything that she needed to get the heavy-duty reactor online. Pulling fuel from the water, refining it, and running the water through for cooling. Her air assets were starting to be manufactured. One light striker craft every three minutes being assembled by the nanofortress. She grinned, cracking her knuckles, and set to giving orders. Her base was well defended. Now was the time for the counterattack. Smakabao watched the planet dwindle behind him from the comfort of his suite aboard his warship. He knew the planet was lost. His two peers had ignored him, ignored his advice. When six hours had passed and the Terran had reduced the four nearby military bases to wreckage and sent in reclaimers to gather up the debris and haul it back, he knew that the Terran had won. He shook his head as the light splashed to warn that the ship was about to enter jump space. He remembered the way the initial structures had looked. If he ever saw them again, he'd use orbital kinetic kill or atomic weapons. If you let them land, let them dig in on your planet... It is theirs. New and lost, he thought to himself. Jane laughed, spinning in her chair as the first of the heavy Warmecks left the massive Nanoforge supplied Warmec construction bay. The EVI crashes were up and running. She'd have to give them orders more than kill everyone around you. But that was fine. She had her nuclear dampeners up now, and her base shields could even bounce a rod from God. Full of fence time. She smiled as the bay doors of the Warmech factory opened. A massive 500-ton Warmech strode out of the construction building on two thick legs, the armor painted red and white, gleaming in the sunlight. She looked at the plaque on the wall and laughed again. Confederate Military Autonomous War Facility. Create. Command. Conquer. End of chapter. Chapter 368. Six months after case Omaha, terror, local time. One month external time. Matron Sangre had been a lot of things during her long life. Ship captain, 
mother, life mate, student, beloved child, jump drive engineer specialist, castaway. Of all of them, being a mother and a life mate had been her favorite. But her children had grown. Her youngest daughter, Nectati, had surpassed everything Sangre had ever wanted for her, and feared for her. Matron Sangre often felt that she had risen to every challenge in her long life. Her oldest son dying as a rifleman in the unified military forces, putting down a rebellion. Her oldest daughter becoming a medical officer on a trading ship that vanished, moving with her husband to the captive world of the unified council. When her husband had vanished one foggy evening, she thought her world had come to an end. She still remembered that night. Sangbra and her husband, a successful business magnate, had met friends for dinner at a posh, upscale dining facility. The conversation had turned to the horror flooding the girl net, how the precursors had returned, in more than just one or two of history, and had begun to slaughter the people of the unified civilized species and broadcast their slaughter at Galnet. A friend had asked Sangbra if she knew what had become of Nectarty. Sangbra had shaken her head and quietly told her friend that she feared for the worst, that Nectarty's ship and the colony that she was a part of had been destroyed by the precursors. She'd felt ill, the dinner not agreeing with her, and gone home early, taking a robotic taxi. Her husband had never arrived. Their limousine had been found, empty, apparently abandoned in a parking garage. One thing Sangbra had always prided herself in was her instincts. Her instincts told her to run. She had purchased tickets home and let the reason known that she had to return to enter her child, the replacement for her lost body. She had managed to buy the tickets and leave quickly. The friends that she'd been speaking with had vanished while she had been in transit. She had rejoiced to discover her daughter had survived. It had been before the war, and she had quickly traveled to Terrasol to meet up with the daughter and the survivors of It Tastes Sweet that had survived the brutal precursor attack. She had thought that there would be little more excitement in her life, that it would be quiet and calm as she aged. Instead, four things happened. First, she had hired the human junker Maximilians to retrieve biosamples and personal effects from the Timvaru Prime. Second, Timvaru Prime had been attacked by precursors in such numbers that the junkers were forced to flee. Third, Maximilian had returned with his friends, bringing literally hundreds of thousands of refugees that her daughter Nectati had arranged safe lodging for. Fourth, while Matron Sangra had been visiting where the refugees would be housed, the Lanark clan had invaded the Terrasol system. One thing chained to the next, and Sangra felt herself deep beneath the surface of Terrasol, holding the four hands of a nervous Lanark clan teenage filly with her own four hands. The filly was afraid. Not because of the invasion, no. The Terrasol Defense Force had crushed the invasion like a ground car running over a discarded fast food container. She was afraid because Sixth Battle of Fortress Sol was over. What will they do with us? The filly, the Yogma-O, asked quietly, her tendrils trembling with fear. What is waiting for us upon the surface of this world now that the Great Herd is attacked? She looked around, her eyes rolling. They hate us. Will they destroy us? They, they, they must have destroyed the great herd. Will they kill me? Kill my siblings? She began to sob. I'm 
so, so afraid. Sangra squeezed the line of Lampoli's hands. Do you fear the Cossack of Russia, the Pontiac Cossacks, and the tough and war steel horde of our hosts? The Puri shook her head. No, they are kind people, even if they are often melancholy. I was afraid at first, but they have only been kind to me and my siblings. Sangre nodded. They are a fearsome people, as are all Terrans. But you have seen their kindness. Again the filly nodded. Yes, matron Sangra, she said softly. Her trembling was easing. Do you think that our hosts would allow anyone to hurt you after they have sworn upon blood, war steel, vodka, and munitions to keep you safe? Sangra asked. The filly shook her head. They're a martial people, matron. She leaned down and whispered conspiratorially. One of the daughters of Warsteel taught me to fire a weapon. Sangra smiled and nodded. You see, they show you to defend yourself. Defend your siblings. They will not come to harm you. The filly trembled slightly, looking up. C can I stay here? In this place of beauty, do, do I have to go to the surface? Sangra nodded when the filly looked down. My dear, you belong in the sunshine. To gallop and canter upon the grassy steps of the wild fields. To take your siblings to see the midnight sea, Sangbre said. This place is not for one such as you, my lovely. But I like it here, the filly said. She shuddered. I do not have nightmares. The precursors have come to kill my siblings. I do not fear the great war steel Cossacks. She leaned down and whispered again. My sister sings to them has joined one of the chorus. Sangbre sighed internally. Your sister, have you asked her if she wants to see the sun again? The pretty sighed. Yes. Yes, she says that they are ancient ones that must be sung to, that her and the rest of the Kapitani corps must lull to sleep the hymns and carols. Your host needs your sister's voice to show them the way to the midnight sea, so that they can wade into the waters. Sangbra said, She will need your strength to lean upon them, the same strength you showed during your travel here, during the fighting. Yunga Mu nodded, her face brightening. I can help her, help her and the Kaptani Corps in their duties. Sangbra smiled, squeezing the filly's hands again. There you go, sweetling. Thank you, matron, the filly said. She leaned down and hugged Sangbra before turning and trotting away. Sangre picked up her gripping stick and leaned on it, slowly exhaling. Now you're all right, Captain Manners asked, stepping out of the shadows, his adaptive camouflage having kept him hidden. She has such a long life ahead of her, Sangre said. She shines so brightly to my eyes. Captain Manners nodded, knowing that she referred to her new eyes. Matron Sangre had entered the Cathedral of Endless Night, where the daughters of the Chroma Baba Yaga dwelled. When she had exited, Captain Manners had seen that the experience had left marks on the Tinvara matron. She had war-steel eyes now, matte black, featureless orbs surrounding her white fur. A red streak went from the tip of her nose, up her face, between her eyes, up between her ears, and then all the way back down to the vanish at the top of her buttocks. She had also placed her hand, her palm gashed and bleeding, against the salt-crystal-encrusted skull of the long-dead human. One of the childless ones. Captain Manners 
had done the same. Together, Captain Manners and Matron Sangra had carefully removed the skulls that they had touched from the elevator wall and taken them to be interred into one of the cathedrals. Captain Manners had never considered himself to be a superstitious man, but the ritualistic actions had been seared into his memory. Are you all right, Matron? Captain Manners repeated. Sangra nodded slowly, breathing slowly and heavily. I am... After a moment, she passed her right catching hand over her face, taking a moment before opening her eyes. Who's next? she asked. Captain Manners checked his data link. Vanatamu, a Lanaklan female with four calves, two colts, two fiddies, and the caverns of blessed trumpet. Sangra began moving towards the door. The sparkling field over it kept in breathable air. She lifted a breathing mask, putting it over her nose. What is her concerns? Captain Manners followed her, not bothering with the mask. He had needed it at first, but as of recent events, he no longer needed to worry about toxic air. She refuses to leave the side of the wounded of the Tuvan Warsteel Horde. She cares for them, but knows that her cars need to go topside. She is torn by duty, Matron Sangre said softly. I am feeling her familiar with. Captain Manners nodded. The mayor stated her case to Sangra softly, eloquently. She had been the wife of a high-ranking Most High and felt responsibility keenly. Well, before she was only interested in parties and galas, in social events, she had left it all behind. Now she was concerned with the pain and suffering of others and sought to ease their discomfort. Sangra closed her eyes and then opened them slowly. She stared at the Lanarkland female for a long moment, then nodded slowly. I understand, was all she said. Once she'd left the chamber, Captain Manners following, she made a slow, wandering path to the living quarters. So, uh, I take it, uh, her destiny, Captain Manners asked. Songbra nodded slowly. It is difficult to explain. The matron's sisters were waiting, as Songbra explained what the mayor had said. She simply nodded. My sister has been changed down here. As have we all, the mayor said quietly. Captain Manners followed the Tinvara matron as she slowly made her way to one of the elevators. They were both silent as the elevator rose. I dream of my daughter, matron Sangbra said softly. Captain Manners stood quietly. I see her dancing amongst the stars, a gleaming trail behind her. My people cautiously, nervously following her. She often carries a flaming chainsaw in one hand and an astrogation log in the other, Matron Sangre said. A part of me cannot believe I gave birth and nursed her. Matron Sangre sighed and leaned on her gripping stick. She seems so much larger than life, she said quietly. She will be a legend, a mythical bead who may or may not have existed to those who come after Captain Manners nodded. They were silent for the rest of the ride. As the elevator doors opened, Matron Sangre looked at Captain Manners. Let's go see if Demi 3 has anything to drink, she smiled. She stepped out into the warm sunlight. Banded free worlds. You're really gonna let them stay? Nothing follows. Terrasol. The Tuvan Warsteel Horde gave them score. Several of them have learned salt craving. Some of them have joined the choruses. Others care for the cyborgs. Manted free worlds. Still, uh, they attacked your world. Nothing follows. 
Terrasol. Not those ones. They were refugees from the precursor attack that annihilated an entire world. Besides, do you want to tell one of the Warseal Kassok holds that they have to break their vows of blood and honor? Manted Freewilds. No, no thank you. Nothing follows. Rygalian Syrian Compact. Good plan. End of chapter. Chapter 369. The alert came across the data links on, first, the emergency broadcast channel. Then it was cancelled, then broadcast across the general command frequency. And was cancelled, and then the system most high came over the government mandatory announcement channel on all of our data links. I don't remember the exact words, but he was panicking. I can remember. Still, how he had foam around his shells, how his speeding tendrils spasmed, how his eyes rolled in all six sockets, how his words were tumbling over one another, and he babbled out over and over variations of, we're all going to die. I was moving before my military police escorts, trotting away towards the motorpole. My tank was there, 128131, my faithful tank. I reached the motorpool when everyone else was still running in circles. I had stopped by the armory and found it empty, abandoned. I got my armor, which was to protect me from hull fragments falled off of any hit and did not penetrate the armor, but deformed the interior to spray shards of metal through the crew compartment. I had no personal weapons, a tanker, I did not need one. The motorpool was empty as I trotted through it. I remember plaz sheets blowing by in the winds. One stuck in my mind, a plaz info sheet informing everyone the possession of Terran media was considered subversive and would be punished harshly. It scraped across the plaz screen, whispering. It was then that I heard it. There is only enough for one. The shockwave hit me hard, but my armor possessed psychic shielding and I managed to keep my feet, staggering. My tank waited, 125 tons of hovering death. I went through the checklist, walking around outside of it. I activated and deployed the weapons. The tank had no ammunition. The weapons were disabled. But still, I deployed them and ran through the functions checks. When that was done, I climbed in and went through each position, each station, activating them and running the proper preventative maintenance checks at services. Once, I needed to get transmission fluid for the right forward number of nacelle fan gearbox. Twice more, I heard it. There is only enough for one. The day was clear, sunny, warm, a pleasant breeze. I looked to the sky, not for contemplation, but out of curiosity. How long until the precursors arrive? Not long. I returned to the motor pool, master, maintenance building, going through offices until I found the keys to the munitions locker and the weapons locker. I set about making my tank ready to fight. When I'd finished activating the weapons, arming them, loading the munitions maze, I sat beside the tank, waiting. There is only enough for one! I shuddered, a trickle of blood oozing from my nostril. My company commander galloped by, tearing at his own mane with his hands, ripping at his own face, screeching as he kicked and lunged down the road. 
My helmet clinked and I activated the communications channel. What I heard filled me with relief. This is the armored most high a armoru. All troops to your tanks. I am with you. Excerpt from We Were the Lanaclan of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. Buxton checked the six Talgan that were crouched down on the gantry, their missile launchers bobbing slightly as they compensated for the movement of the massive mining machine. He double-checked the infrared laser guidance systems against the points the Sergeant Casey had pointed out. Team 1, fire! Buxton ordered. Two missiles launched, driven by graviton accelerators, the solid-fuel rocket motors kicking in less than five minutes from the launcher. The missiles went hypersonic less than ten meters from the launch point, streaking out to explode against the battle steel axles of the grinders. Both axles exploded. The grinder section stopped moving, one partially falling in. Give me a second, Glory said. She shifted her arm a few times. Okay, it's coming loose. Buxton looked up. The massive mining machine was still chasing the Confederate and Lennox Land military forces. Its sheer bulk forced them to engage the other precursor machines as they went, face to face, with no finesse or maneuvering. As Buxton watched, a Lanaclan tank took a hit, and a copula jumping off the ring, green and orange flames billowing out from the ring seal, the hatches exploding off. He didn't die alone. The two Lanaclan tanks flanking it gutted its killer with precise plasma rounds. All right, Glory said. She looked up at Buxton. How's it going on out there? Not good, Buxton admitted. They're taking hits. Couple of Terran tanks got knocked out a few minutes ago. Get me loose and I'll cut this big bastard, Glory said. Team two, fire, Buxton ordered. Three missiles this time. The drive shafts for the massive grinders blew apart the grinders. These ones, cone-shaped, went still. Glory shifted again, managing to get one arm out. She flexed her fingers, her arm and her hand scraped and gouged. Much better, she said. Buxton ordered the other three teams, one at a time, to fire at specific points Casey had pointed out. When it ended, Glory managed to get both arms free, raising her hands against the massive housing cover. She pushed her way out until she was sitting on the edge of the housing, looking at her legs. Man... I'm all scratched up, she complained, looking up at Casey. So, champ, what's the plan? Gonna show a girl a good time? Casey laughed. Plan is, uh, blow this big bastard up and run like hell, the Terran said. 471 popped up an image of an explosion with a bunch of greenies flying away, all blaming each other for blowing up the break room toaster. So, um, what are you, Buxton started. Below him, deep in the machine's hulk, Circuits finally passed self-check and were powered up. Initial checks reported that the machine was engaged in xeno-species conflict. The higher-function thinking array lobes responded to powering up with a single broadcast that blasted out around them. You shall be devoured by the hive! Buxton staggered at the shriek, his helmet almost clamping painfully around his ears. Murder the digital Momni Messiah protect me, Ball 7-1 broadcast. Buxton could see all the green mantids were flashing the same things as their psychic protection cranked all the way up to max and added something called signal interrupt to the protection. Adox opened his faceplate, the sides retracting into his helmet, showing his sweaty face. 
Vuxton could see that Alex's eyes were bright red. His lips were peeled back from his teeth in something that couldn't even characteristically be called a grin. A nerve was spasming on his cheek. A burning tingling flowing up his arm, and Vuxton looked down at his stubber instead. The smoldering eagle had gone from a dull red to a white fire, the engraved lighting up, the weapon feeling uh, different in his hand. What's going on? As General Nodrup turned and looked at the generals gathered, he tagged his link and brought up all of the Mantid and Lankalan into the channel. Do not move. If you have to, so move slowly, he texted out. Every Terran eye in the command center was burning bright red. The humans had gone stock still for a long moment, then began to move again. No drunk could see that some of the humans were clenching and relaxing their fists. He could see muscle spasms in cheek, along the jaw, on the forearms. Sparks were dancing in some of the Terrans' hair, across their knuckles, or small tiny arcs were traveling up and down their arms. Their armor was matte black with a glowing logo of Confederate Space Force on the shoulder, and to Nodruk's eyes, it looked like the Space Force and the Confederate logos were shining brightly. He used his command links to check the Terran's vitals. Pulse and respiration were at dead level, blood pressure cold, psychic dampeners in helmets both protective for the user and those around them were maxed out. Some were fading already. Cyberware reported rapid-fire nerve pulses, Keep your hands away from your weapons, he texted. He clicked into the command channels. All non-Terran descent human personnel report to the armor areas for modular armor addition, General Nodruck said, keeping his voice carefully leveled. This is a non-discretionary direct order from the theater commander and is to be performed immediately. He watched down at the workroom. All Terran ship supervisors, morale and psychic check upon all personnel. Nodrak ordered, You shall be devoured by the hive. Roared out, and Taka spit over the side of his tank. He looked around, spinning the commander's lift in a 360 to get a good look at the battlefield as the barrels of his quad barrel cooled off. A tenth of his tanks were smoking, either from enemy hits or the nanoforges running hard enough that they'd overheated and were blowing white clouds of vapor, as the cooling systems went to work on the slash was reclaimed. He spun around again, slowly, looking at the shattered wreckage a cry little sister was passing through. He used his implanted tag machines that he was seeing. Well, it was true that every precursor vessel put out the same designs on the big machines. The smaller machines often were custom-built, function over form, rapidly designed by the precursor manufacturing systems but they always followed a pattern that Trucker could vaguely touch on. It was obvious that the ones that had landed were Type 3, but he was seeing wreckage from the ones that had surfaced that didn't match Type 3 precursor ships that had attacked. His implant tagged them as, tentatively, Type 2. HHG was out of the fight, not due to the damage, but the enemy had been defeated in the area of operations. All units, full stop, Trucker said. He waited till Cryon's little sister came to a stop and climbed out. Red Comet has dismounted, Trucker heard his communication specialist say, alerting everyone to the fact that his boots had just hit the ground. Trucker walked over and took a look at the shattered armor and pieces. He tapped his helmet, ordering it to record what he was looking at. Have 208 come out here. I want his opinion on this junk, Trucker said. 
He knelt down and picked up a piece of the hardware. He felt the way it was cold in his hand, almost feeding benevolent. As he watched, arcs of psychic energy crawled down his arm, wrapping his feet and the chunk of Molly Cirque in his hand in a faint, flickering lightning. The chunk of Molly Cirque sighed and dissolved into dust. 208 jumped off the side of the tank, the wings on his armor snapping open. 208 glided next to Trucker, arcing up and then dropping to the ground. What, what, boss man? 208 asked, seeing Trucker dump the dust in his hand. Check those molly circs. Don't try and tell a mechanic them. Just check them, Trucker said. He reached out and grabbed a chunk of armor, looking at it. He angled it, examining it. Ha! Ah, not exactly battle steel. This is a laminate, not solid battle steel. Toy reached out with a probe and tapped the molly circ rock, rocking it out of the housing, humming a little ditty to himself. Trucker turned when 208 gave a loud screech and jumped back pulling around his rifle and firing at the block. The green-mantled engineer, a technical specialist grade 7, pulled a tiny implosion grenade off of his harness and threw it, forcing Trucker to dodge to the side. The grenade went off as 208 climbed up the side of the tank, still screeching. Two of the other greenies popped out of the maintenance hatches, firing rockets at the wreckage, screeching. Trucker stood up shaking slightly at how he'd been close enough to the tiny implosion charge that he felt his boots loosen. He'd heard the chatter on the channels as the tankers of 3rd Armored Division Headquarters and Headquarters Company, HHC, wondering just what was going on. Dozens of greenies were firing rocket launchers into the wreckage of several different precursors. It took Trucker a minute to pass what the greenies were broadcasting. It was so fast, so furious, but at least it was repeated over and over in some variant. Free, we will die. Never will we submit ever again. Cease fire, Trucker roared out over the greeny channel. Cease fire. Cease fire petered out. Trucker walked over, looking at the little greeny, who gave the impression of foaming at the mouth. Red-faced icons flashed between its antennae. Manted make, Trucker said. It wasn't a question. No, 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 208 said. Omni Queen, Bake. Yes. Trucker reached up and touched the side of his helmet. Smokey No watched as Trucker ordered his men to back off from the multiple precursor wreckage and use the quad barrels on them. You shall be devoured by the hive. Buxton staggered to the side, putting his hand against the side of his helmet. He looked up and then stepped back, realizing that somehow Casey was standing in front of him, leading down. This thing didn't come with the others, Casey said. It's been here all along. End of chapter. Chapter 370 Admiral Hagley stared at the holotank, completely unaware that a group of her opposites were staring at the nearly same image in a flickering holotank. The Orion Cygnus Galactic Armstub glowed brightly. The stars, different colors. There were different colored areas, slightly glowing, as if the stars were in diffuse clouds. Blue for the Terran Confederacy, with color hatching from non-Terran allied races. Yellow for the Unified Council Territories. Green for the Neo-Sapien Systems, aka Disputed Territory, with markers for who was in control of the area. Red for the precursors, with the diagonal hatching for the type. 
Purple for the idiots. Grey fog for the long dark, aka Precursor Autonomous War Machine spawning zone. Red and her amber for the area where the Margite had first appeared, which was missing on the Unified Council maps. Amber with red markings for the Talmanus Harmony Cluster. The Admiral reached out and touched the amber marked over Terrasaur. No contact. Case Omaha protocols. She sighed. Almost four months since Case Omaha had been announced, a month since the other systems had left gravitational protective systems, and Terrasaur was still locked down. She hoped that her wife and children in the Mecha Krautland were not too worried about her. Hagley pushed down her concern and looked back at the holotank. The Confederacy, before Terrasol had been locked down, had managed to largely take out the regions of the Unified Council territories and start to squeeze. As a student of military history, she knew that this was where a conventional force would start to slow down, even further, as troops and equipment would have to be diverted for occupations. This would lower the amount of troops and war material available for all fronts, take up trained troops and require a massive amount of dedicated logistics to keep it all running. For nearly 8,000 years that had been beaten by the Terrans, no matter what government that they had lived under. Cloning banks and the Bornhole system ensured instant reinforcements, nanoforges and creation engines and von human logistics systems had ensured that the Terran supply lines were only as far as to the nearest gas giant, nebula, or cloud, or ocean. Robotic and cloned manned ships' refit bases could be manufactured quickly and easily, allowing troops to be refit even while the Terran military machine dug into a system. Grand Great Most High of Military Most High's Sumpramau stared at the holotank in front of him. The flickering hologram annoyed him. Right here, he said pointing at the holotank. This thing has worse resolution than Neo-Sapien Gullnet videos filmed on a pair of cam shades in a bathroom stall. It is the standard holotank most high. The most high of the executive most high spy in Mo'o said. His tendrils curled nervously as his crest implanted. It has always been good enough. Supreme Mo'o turned and curled his lips inflating his jowls. We fight for our lives against crazed enraged lemur species who might as well be doing magic and their half-mad allies. And you start bleating about good enough like the most high of corporate most high's Lohengrad, he sneered. If you have nothing to add, please launch yourself into the nearest stellar mass so that you do some good. Sma'inma'o swallowed nervously and backed away. For millions of years, our species has trumpeted about good enough from our buttocks, and then we were shocked, shocked, and dismayed, I say, by this fact that some jacked-up primate lemurs jumped out of a tree and began gnawing on our skulls. To Upramau let out a scream of frustration. How am I to use this worthless dross? He screamed. I would be better off with two-dimensional pictures than this terrible device. He whirled in place, kicking the hot tank. Spark shot out of it, and it went out of the squeal of feedback. I would be better served by hiring a black market pornographer to attune these devices. Why is it some clever neo-sapien with a data slate camera and a handheld flashlight can get the resolution fine enough 
and you can count every pubic hair upon the trollop's genitals, but the unified war room has such poor resolution in their holotanks. I can't tell if I'm looking at a lima armor or a grocer's mannequin trying to sell me substandard Nutricud. The gathered Most Highs of the Most Highs all looked away from one another, trying to avoid the questions. Admiral Hagley walked around her holotank, which was displaying crisp, clear graphics. She rewound the display to show the early meetings between the Unified Council and the Terran Exploration Teams. Then, through the initial attempts at assistance at repelling the PAWMs, then the Atlantic land attack upon Talmanus Harmony and other systems, then at the Terran counterattack using rapid ready forces and irregulars. Now the full weight of Space Wars was coming down on them, having retooled and trained for this war, not the last war. For every combat ship, there were ten logistics and infrastructure units moving forward. Combat arms troops only faced low-level threats and rapid deployment. The logistics and rear echelon troops were looking at a decade posting per world. She growled slightly to herself as she changed several icons. 58 EPOW worlds, 82.1 billion EPOWs. 80% of which were just unlucky Neo-Sapiens that had apparently just been walking down the street when the press gang had arrived. Six of the races were currently so far from being able to withstand the rigors of modern battlefield that the Terran Confederacy was spending more time and materials on emotional and mental care than they would on feeding those EPOWs. She brought up combat effectiveness stats on the Neo-Sapiens conscripts under Lanark to control. Less than 0.138. She brought up the ratings for combat effectiveness of the 1st Talcan Marines and the 3rd Libauan Aquatic Commandos. The Talcans rated a 14, the Libauans rated a 9. Anything over 6.25 was considered combat effective for their assigned roles. The Talcans' first spacecraft was coming into play. Same with the Akaltak Aerospace Warfare Division. They'd bought and refurbished the old Pubvian carrier design and built exactly three. But she knew her military history and knew that wars had been decided by a single carrier in the right place. Admiral Hagley stomped around the holotank again, looking it over. She could feel the eyes of the Terran Confederate military planning board staring at her, letting her look it over. All of them were experts in their own areas of expertise and all were waiting for Admiral Hagley to decide what, if any, changes need to be made to the Confederate war plans. Not the battle plans, those were up to local commanders and theater commanders. Admiral Hagley's job was to lead the planning section for the war in its entirety. She stopped and brought up a small system towards the base of the stub, at the edge of Lanark land space and the long dark and the unexplored core world territories. Its name burned above it, Belvic 8, Hesla. A list of killed in action, temporal warfare scrolled by. Ships popped up, the designs before deployment to what was supposed to be training and integration exercises, and the design it had finished with. Anti-Esprit edition appeared. Hagley nodded to herself as she wiped it all away with a single swipe of her hand. Admiral Thanis had died in the cradle, meaning she'd been killed while in command during combat. Technically, it was old age, but it was old age brought about by temporal warfare. At least, that was what was assumed. The Admiral of the Black Fleet had taken Thanis' body. 
A captain's soul is the price, whispered through Hakeley's mind. She moved over and checked the status of the Irregulars, a.k.a. the Idiots, and their deployment. Balvac 8 for the Imperium of Wrath, the Neko Marines had apparently vanished with the case Omaha from Terra. The same with the Legion of the Damned and the Black Fleet. The Imperium of Wrath was still in place, however. An Alvin court was being established for Balvac 8, as the world of Hestler had taken would be taking an atomic pounding. That made her circle the tank again, reaching out towards another holotank and giving a wave with her hand. A tall, purple-skinned creature appeared, tentacles over a lamprey mouth, conical head, white eyes, long-fingered hands, no apparent sex organs or secondary sex characteristics. One heart, one lung, short and obviously tailored digestive system. Approximately eight times the nerve bundles is a Terran of approximately the same size. Atrukna, hostile psychic species. Potential and observed capabilities scrolled up. Direct kinetic combat effectiveness, 2.1. Psychic combat effectiveness, Terran, 1.1. Psychic combat effectiveness, Manted, 1.3. Psychic combat effectiveness, Other, 19. Other data streamed by land speed, primary mode of travel, how many in a combat group, observed weapons, and more. She made another tossing motion, although she could have just brought it up with the data link. But Hagley had come up on a direct action branches of Space Force, had served decades with each branch before settling on Navy, in the time on a tradition of those climbing the rank lanner. Ships, ground vehicles, aerospace vehicles appeared in the tank. She made another motion, bringing up Dweller Spawn from the Second Talcan War. Another flick of her wrist showed military intelligence estimation of the emulation between the mechanical versions and the biological version. Either the Dweller Spawn, as the Necomarines called them, were based off of the machinery when they were designed, or the autonomous war machines were based off of the biological warfare biomachines. Or both. She wiped it away tossing Balvec 8 into its own holotank and leaving the icon burning with the icons of its units currently deployed on the planet, slowly orbiting the system. Admiral Hagley brought up another tank, moving to it, slowly moving around it. She kept stretching out her hand to run through the hologram, which she had set to have the consistency of warm porridge. It helped her think. Reports of psychic disturbances heading for Confederate space. Copying that report in her hand, she tossed it to another screen and brought up a classified file. A massive cyborg, reduced to brain and some extraneous tissue, standing next to an early model fighter with the words, Major Freeboard, Daxon, decommissioned. Next to the massive Borg, memories downloaded from the massive Borg showed a definitive proof of an active Omniqueen on an ancient planet and almost depleted system. Closer to Lanarkal land space than Confederate space. But Hagley had studied the Manted War, knew how Omni Queens operated. They threw out spokes, creating new hubs, which would throw out spokes, making even more hubs. Military intelligence estimated that if she was willing to strip the system, including processing the mantle and any metallic calls, she would be able to send out at least two dozen Omni Queens, which meant she or her children were coming. She brought up the encrypted transmission from the Dark Crusade of Light, 
the Imperium of Wrath's current military operation that seemed to consist of a majority of the more heavily armed and chaotic idiots. It showed a female Terran, identified and verified as Bologna, mistress of the Black Fleet, dancing as she intoned words of prophecy before the gathered leaders of the Dark Crusade. Hagley shook her head. She hated prophecies. Another tank brought up the classified signal from the Terran diplomatic team led by dreams of something more, specifically the seer trance words of the team seer. Admiral Hagley moved to the middle of the tank and closed her eyes, listening to both seers at the same time in their original languages. Once the recording was finished, she moved on to the tank showing the estimated status of the Unified Council territories. She brought up the Confederate Gestalt estimations of public opinion of the Unified Council and the Lenin land themselves. Before the Cold War's assault, the majority of Terran Confederacy had considered a 1% line to be justified against the Lanark land species. Then finding out what had been done to the Lanark land themselves, the testimony of the refugees rescued from Tenvuru Prime, and the popularity of the brutally honest Vukulu'u, co-host of the face-smashing opinions, Necho, had changed public opinion. The Confederacy's citizenry considered an average Lanark land to be just as much of a victim of the Unified Council system as the Neo-Sapiens. Combined with the we-need assistance broadcast from several entities tentatively considered a leadership subspecies, and the majority of the Confederacy wanted the Lanarkal land people spared as much as possible. But Admiral Hagley knew that occupation to change a culture was fought with risk. One of the main Hamburger Kingdom's conundrums with the long lifespan of the Lanark land, combined with the inertia of a hundred million leered old political, social, and cultural machine, the threat wouldn't be over just because the Lanark land world was occupied or burnt to a cinder. There was always a chance of a Lanark land black box program managing to create an effective bioweapon to gentle Terran descent humanity and their allies in a slow, invisible progression resulting in a return of the Unified Council system within a few generations. Militarily, the Lanark land were no threat, but neither was the ten-ton boulder unless it was dropped on you. She sighed, staring at all the icons. Every strategy conceived so far was fraught with risks, not just fighting itself, but afterwards. The motto, you can win every battle and still lose the war, was inscribed on the side of every holotank. Supruma'u stared at the holotanks as the Neo-Sapient turned it on. The hologram no longer flickered, was no longer mostly transparent, no longer had wavy lines and lines of static through it, no longer waved and pulsed. It was stable, high fidelity, crisp and clear. The Neo-Sapient collected his tools and left the room as Supruma'u moved around the tanks, looking at their contents. In the two months it had taken him to find a Neosapient, have him released from prison, and convince him to perform illegal and unauthorized modifications to the software and hardware of the holotanks, the Terrans had made gains. Great Most High, recently promoted, Smackamao had arrived, bringing word of a new Terran attack strategy that had caused most of the intelligence services to label the Lanarkland planetary defense expert as insane. Still, Supremau had watched the footage. It was undeniable. A single ship could quickly take over a world within days, the system within a week or two, from one ship to a massive military presence. 
The Terrans had deployed the system on dozens of worlds. Smackama O had defended two worlds successfully, using atomics on the craft as soon as it landed. Within a week, the Terrans had responded with a full-blown invasion. His peers believed it that the Terran war machine was overstretched, that the logistics, manpower, and control chains were too long and becoming tenuous. Supra Uma'u sought for what he felt it was. Consolidation. Every intelligence and strategy expert at Supremu's disposal believed that the Terrans would soon have no choice but to make a direct strike towards the Unified Council's seat. A thrust to take that or eliminate the 50 worlds between the nearest Terran-controlled systems and the Unified Council world. That the prime chance to hand the Lemurs a defeat was to wait until they'd begun their spear thrust, wait for it to gain momentum, and to cut the Terran supply chains by counterattacking and taking back over the systems as the base of the strike. Foolishness and ignorance, Smackamao had harumphed. The Terran war machine supply lines are the nearest gas giant. Then uh, what do you suggest? Spyman O sneered. Just roll on our backs and hope for the best. Smackamao shook his head, looking at the star map. He pointed out a single system. Here! The Terrans will hit here, not with their single-ship infrastructure system, but in force. The executor sneered again, opening a window to show the system. It was a mess, a trinary star system, a red giant with a yellow star and a white dwarf orbiting it, sixteen gas giants, a third of them supermassive, five winding asteroid belts, a kuiper belt, and an ore cloud so thick with debris that it was measurable and prevented outside observation. There is nothing here, the executor sneered. No solid planets. Even the moons around those supermassive gas giants are gas giants. The closest thing to a solid body are the comets. The Prumau stared at the systems displayed, deep in the Unified Council territory. They were nearly a hundred council worlds within a hundred light years of the system. The only thing present was scanning beacon to keep a watch for pirates, a communication link, and a gull that repeated node. For any other species that of the great herd had faced, it was a worthless system militarily. Yes, the gas giants could be mined, but that was a time, labor, and material-intensive process. For any other species, but the Terrans. Smackma'u is right, Suprema-O said. Gather all available military fleet elements that are not tied down guarding the systems. He reached out and touched the system's icon. They will be attacking there. The system icon burned brightly. Admiral Haley stared at the icon. It was perfect. That was the problem. It was too perfect. Still, it would provide an advanced logistics node, take the pressure off the support units when they made their initial attacks. It would work as a massive refit and rearming base once it was controlled for a month or two. It was obviously a trap. But sometimes, traps needed to be sprung if one wished to catch the trapper. She reached out and touched the icon. Send 29th Fleet in. In the long dark, ships oriented, linking their navigation computers into one vast network. Space bulged, twisted, and finally tore. The Yamada jumped into Halspace, all heading for the same target. There was only enough for one. End of chapter.
And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.